Well, please open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1, about halfway through the New Testament. So if you find Matthew, Mark, and Luke, keep going. Uh, if you get to the end, you went too far, but about halfway in between there. 2 Timothy chapter 1. While you're finding it, what is your thing? What's your one thing? What's the thing that you know and everybody else about you knows, at least the people who know you best know, the thing you're most devoted to? What's that thing that most shapes your life? What's that, that thing that you most deeply prize? What's the treasure that you most fiercely protect? What would you give everything to keep? Well, our passage is about being loyal to the one thing that God says should have that place in our life. As the final verse of today's passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14 puts it, guard the treasure. That treasure is, according to verse 8, the third verse of our passage, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But today's passage not only tells us what to do, be loyal to the gospel. That's what the passage is about. It also explains what that looks like. In fact, the way the passage works, and I want to tell you before I read it so maybe you can see them as I go through it, the passage says basically be loyal to the gospel and then gives six explanations of what that looks like. And so we have six points to today's sermon, and good news, there are also nine descriptions of that gospel that are not one of those six points. But the way the passage works is be loyal to the gospel, that's what to do. Here's six explanations of what that looks like. And oh, by the way, in case anybody forgot, here's nine explanations of the beautiful facets of the one true gospel that we are to be loyal to. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, I remind you, number one, to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, number two, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But number three, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now here comes the nine descriptions of the gospel. Verse nine, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling? Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Verse 12, for this reason, number four, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Verse 13, number five, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, 14, number 6, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. This is God's Word. Let's ask Him one more time to help us. Father, I could care less if anybody in a few minutes can repeat the six things that I'm going to try to show. Or the nine descriptions of the portrait of the gospel that I'm going to try to show. But what we're asking, what we need, what we cannot do, we plead with you, Lord, that every person who hears this sermon, especially those who call themselves Christians, would care about what you care about. Do that in us, Lord. Do that. Oh, for Christ's sake, 
whose name and reputation is at stake in our lives cause us to be loyal to the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I pointed them out as I read, but I want you to go back with me and skim as I do it again. Then we're going to go back and try to wring out from each of these something of the sufficiency of Christ over our lives. So the main idea of the passage I've said is be loyal to the gospel. I hope that'll be self-evident the further we go. And as our sermon title suggests, the title is Gospel Loyalty Explained. This passage explains what being loyal to the gospel looks like. In summary, today's text, Paul not only tells Timothy what to do, be loyal to the gospel, but also how to do it, which are those six points of the sermon. The points are, number one, stoke into flame that which is in you. So that's verses 6 and 7. Just skim it. The New American Standard says, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. Verse 6 and 7, the ESV and the NIV say, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. The CSB and New Revised Standard Version says, rekindle the gift of God that's in you. The King James says, stir up the gift of God which is in you. So our first point is to do that. The first thing we must do to be loyal to the gospel is stoke the flame of God's gift that's within us. Keep our heart blazing hot for Christ. Number two is in verse eight. Be unashamed of the Lord and of his servants. Do not be ashamed of, me, of the Lord or of me as prisoner. Even when that loyalty lands you in a precarious situation, Paul reminds Timothy that he is the Lord's prisoner. You can see that in the passage, verse 8. Even while he's writing this letter, he's doing it from a jail cell. Why was Paul in prison? Because he was loyal to the gospel. What do you suppose might happen to somebody who was serving the Lord in a Roman province like Ephesus? And also unashamed of identifying himself with a man who's in prison for being faithful to the gospel? it might cost you a little something. So number two is be unashamed of the Lord and of his servants. You want to be loyal to the gospel? Be unashamed of Jesus. Unashamed of Jesus and of his people. So that's the second expression. Number three is in the end of verse eight, suffer by God's power. Now this is a deeper layer than the second point. Instead of being unashamed of those who suffer for Christ, verses 8b through 11 call for gospel loyalty that manifests itself in being one of those people who also suffers for Christ, but we do so by God's power, as the verse says. The point is incentivized not by Paul's example of suffering only, but by Christ's example. Even if we suffer to the point of death for being loyal to the gospel, verses 8 through 11 tell us we will endure even that by remembering our Savior, who himself was put to death. Verse 10 says he abolished death. The NIV says about that phrase, he destroyed death. We're enabled, we are enabled to suffer for Christ, even unto death, because by the gospel, even death is dead. That's number three. Number four is in verse 12. Remember faithful examples. Paul reminds Timothy in verse 12 that he is not calling Timothy to do anything that he himself is not also doing. In fact, Timothy's resolved to be unashamed in the face of suffering. Verse 8, do not be ashamed of the Lord or me as a prisoner. Is energized, verse 12, by remembering that Paul is doing the same thing. He is unashamed. Paul is unashamed in the face of his own suffering for the gospel. The power to endure is often energized by remembering that we're not alone in our suffering for Christ. The book of Hebrews says we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who all have proved Christ's faithfulness by standing on the solid rock of his person and his gospel work. So the fourth way to be loyal to the gospel is to remember that you're not alone. The fifth is in verse 13. Retain sound words. 
You can see it there in verse 13. Paul's commanding Timothy to clutch God's Word with all of his might. Like the way R.C. Sproul put it, who's now in heaven, but a few years before he passed away, R.C. Sproul said, I'll let go of my Bible when you pry my dry, cold, dead hands off of it. Retain the standard of sound words. That's what being loyal to the gospel looks like. And notice verse 13 explicitly states that a tight hold on sound words, if you want to know if you're one of those people, verse 13 tells you what you will most care about. The faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That's what it looks like to be devoted to the B-I-B-L-E. If you know the Bible, good for you. If you know the God of the Bible, you will care about the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That's what loyalty to the gospel looks like. And then finally, verse 14, number six, guard the treasure. That's the sixth expression of gospel loyalty in this passage. It's a commitment to protecting the treasure, guarding what God deems most valuable, keeping watch, not standing down. The treasure, obviously, is the gospel itself, which verses 9 through 11 are all about. The glorious person of Christ, our Redeemer, our friend, the power supply that is both necessary and available to perform this sacred task is, according to verse 14, God Himself protect by the Holy Spirit the treasure. Not by our own power, but through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So to summarize the passage, it's about being loyal to the gospel. What does that look like? Stoke the flame. Be unashamed of Jesus and His people. Suffer by God's strength. Remember those who are faithful. Hold on to sound teaching and guard the treasure of the gospel. So we're going to try to wring something out of each one of those for the profit of our soul. Number one, verses six and seven, kindle afresh. Stoke the flame. Look at verse six. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. That word kindle, stir up, stoke, means to cause something to be reactivated, to be rejuvenated, to begin again. Now why would Paul say to Timothy, stir up again God's gift that's in you? Well, by implication, we can at least say Paul might have thought Timothy's passion was growing dim. Maybe his fire for Christ was burning low. Maybe all the stresses and pressures of life, just like you live with every day, had worn thin his focus on Christ like those pressures have worn your focus on Christ thin. <laughs> Maybe just living in the pagan city of Ephesus, which was, if you can imagine it, even more debaucherous than Memphis, it was flooded with tourists and people every single day who were making their way to the middle of the city to worship in the biggest marble building that had ever been built in human history to that point, the temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. And just watching people flock to that place and Timothy thinking, man, is my preaching making any difference whatsoever? Maybe his fire had burned low. Maybe those pressures that we learned about in 1 Timothy of pastoral ministry and just being a Christian, not just a pastor. He was a member of a church, Timothy was, that was being attacked by false teachers. Had to scrape their pocketbook to care for the widows, discipling slaves and their masters, grieving over the apostasy of people who walked away from Jesus. 1 Timothy 6.21, that's a hard life. You know, maybe all that just zapped Timothy's love relationship with Jesus. Maybe fellowship with Christ was something Timothy could remember, not something he was currently realizing. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. So in number one, if you want to be loyal to the gospel, you have to do something. You have to stir up these embers. You have to stoke these coals. You have to fan something into flame. You have to keep it ablaze. And this verse tells us three ways to do it. It's what to do, how to do, and why to do it. What 
Timothy received that he's supposed to stir up is called in verse 6, the gift of God. How he received that gift that needs to be kindled afresh is the laying on of hands, and why he must do it is told to us in the passage as well. Notice first verse 6 doesn't, though, begin with instruction, but with affirmation. I've just prayed again, Lord, I think almost everybody here would say they're a Christian. I really hope they are. I pray that we are. I pray that I prove myself to be. But I'm asking you not to do something, but before God himself to ask if this affirmation is true of you for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh. That's the way verse 6 starts. What reason? Verse 5 that we heard last Sunday. The reason of the sincere faith in Jesus that dwells in you. It was in your mom, it was in your grandmother, and it's in you too. For this reason, because you're a sincere believer in Christ, he ran away to heaven with your heart. You've given yourself to Him, body, soul, and mind, all of life, all for Christ. Because of this, stoke the flame again. If you don't have Christ, you have no flame to stir up. Timothy's flame for Christ might have been a smoldering wick, burning low, but Paul calls it a sincere faith. Maybe you're there today. The true Christians do often wane in our devotion to Jesus. The embers of His gospel love will never fully die out in our souls. And sometimes we just need a good friend who will come up beside us. Stir up the coals. You know you've drifted. I love you enough not to let you keep going down that path. Kindle again a love relationship with Jesus. Instead of explaining the gift, Paul just alludes to it. Clearly, he assumes Timothy knows what he's talking about. Kindle afresh this gift of God. According to verse 7, I believe this is the Holy Spirit. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, of discipline. I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Stir up the Holy Spirit in your life. The gift is not an it, it's a who. It's a person. God himself received in the person of the Holy Spirit as the seal, the down payment, the deposit of our conversion. As our, I love how God does this. Scriptural call to worship said it. If we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to him. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, He will give life to our mortal body through His Spirit and will raise us again with Jesus, who He also raised by His Spirit. I can remember when I was a little boy uh, out in the, I was, I was barefoot terrorizing Crawfordsville, Arkansas. Just, that's me. And I can remember how much I loved in the cold months not to go get the wood or chop the wood, but when the fire was actually going in the fireplace to be the one that got to stoke it. I don't know why, boys just love to do that, right? Little fire, we're gonna play with it. We're gonna camp in houses. If there's a fire, we're touching it, throwing stuff in it, stoking it, poking it, doing stuff. That was me. And you know what it's like when it looks like it's just all gone. The hot coals are covered in ash. There's no flame above the fuel, the wood or whatever. But one little stoke, one little agitation, especially if you put a bone-dry piece of wood on top of it or some little kindling or straw and you do that one little provocation, instantly it bursts back into flame. 
Is it not astonishing to you that the God of the universe could take up residence in your life, the Holy Spirit, inside of you, and presumably be willing to lie dormant? Not gone, just unprovoked. Not absent, just not stirred up. And I'm asking you, is God the Holy Spirit in you? If you're a true Christian, He is. Not some of Him, all of Him. And Paul is telling Timothy in this passage, maybe the stuff of life has suffocated the fire of the Spirit's Christ-exalting work in your soul, young man. Get your stoker out. Start agitating the coals. Give oxygen to the embers of the Holy Spirit. Give Him the Word of God. Give Him a heart of prayer. Give Him the people of God, the church, and watch the Holy Spirit instantaneously combust your love for Jesus all over again. Feed the Spirit. Stir the Spirit. To put it negatively, Paul said in another place, do not quench the Spirit. Or in another place, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Stir Him up. He loves to be aroused in our souls to make us love and treasure Jesus again. How did Timothy receive this precious gift? Verse 6 says, it's the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Don't misunderstand that statement. The gift came to Timothy vertically. Paul says clearly, the gift of God. It didn't come from Paul, it came from God. But it was confirmed horizontally. Now, i got more to say than I'm going to be able to say, and Brian already warned us, it's a loaded passage, and I'm Jordan Thomas. I can't not say this. I promise you I'm going to skip stuff. I cannot not say this. Do you see in verse 6, given vertically, confirmed horizontally. The gift of God, vertical, in you through the laying on of my hands, horizontal. Vertical gift, horizontal confirmation. You know, the Bible's not really big on whether you call yourself a Christian. The Bible's really big on whether people around you in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells also affirm that the Spirit of Christ is in you. You can't see my heart. At the end of the day, you don't know. I cannot see your heart. But according to the King of Salvation, He did say, we'll know each other by our fruit. I'm not asking, does the Holy Spirit always a raging inferno in your life and you're always on a mountaintop and your walk with Jesus is always just on fire? That's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you when you're at your lowest and the coals look like they're not even hot anymore. It looks like somebody doused them with water and there's no fire in there. It doesn't matter how much you stoke, poke, kindle, stir up, nothing's happening. I'm not asking you if you're at your highest. I'm asking you if you're, you're at your lowest and another person in whom Jesus dwells, like Paul to Timothy, comes before beside you and just starts to agitate a little bit the good work of the Holy Spirit in your life, are you instantaneously combusted again into love for Jesus? Are you hard to make happy in God? The Holy Spirit apparently is willing to lie dormant, but is really happy to be provoked again to exalt Jesus in your life. Why must Timothy keep this gift that he received freshly kindled? Because the verse says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. Not a spirit, the CSB, Christian Standard says, not a spirit of fearfulness. NIV, the spirit does not make us timid, Other translation, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and discipline. It's a threefold portrait of what it looks like when the Spirit of Christ is burning hot in our life. Power, love, discipline. Ask yourself, is this a succinct summary of your walk with Jesus? And if it's not, 
I'm here today to stir you up. Power, love, and discipline. That's what verse 7 says. One of the greatest evidences that gospel power is coursing through a person's soul is loving discipline. Love of Christ, steadfastness with Him. Colossians says, this is mind-boggling. When all the power of God is at work in your life, all. Colossians 1.11 says, the evidence will be steadfastness. You just keep on keeping on. His strength, that's His power. His love, not yours. His strength, His steadfastness, just in you. Not only are these graces to be ours and increasing, they're also things that non-Christians can't fake. I mean, you can't do it in your own strength. You eventually, you just give up. You burn out. But to live like a sinner can't is possible only by the power of Christ within us. When the indwelling Holy Spirit is in us, He makes us love. That's the middle one. Like, love. Really love. To love somebody best, you can't love them first. And if Jesus is your first love and you believe Jesus is in your neighbor, then you will love loving your neighbor to Jesus. That's exactly what Paul is doing for Timothy. He's literally loving him to Jesus. And I'm saying, if the Spirit is in us and provoke, the fire is hot, we will love loving our neighbor to Jesus. Do you do that? That's actually one of the ways to be loyal to the Gospel. If you have the tongues of men and of angels and faith to move mountains and you give your possessions to the poor and you give your body to be burned but you don't love, Paul said you don't have anything. The Spirit gives us that. So there's five more. That's number one. Kindle afresh the gift of God in you. And verse 7 says this gift is the Spirit. Number two is be unashamed of the Lord and His people. Do you see it in verse 8? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. The second evidence of gospel loyalty is that we're very happy to affiliate our lives with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and with God's sons and daughters, fellow Christians. We love that. If I have Christ in common with somebody, then I have everything in common with them. If we have everything in common with somebody, but not Christ, we really don't have anything in common with them. We link our lives. We are unashamed of the testimony of our Lord, and we are unashamed of His other kids. Now imagine you lived in a persecuted country like Timothy, and you received a piece of mail in the letter from another persecuted Christian like Paul, who was in jail, mailing that letter to you. I can imagine that it might be a little tempting for Jordan to be just a little bit ashamed of Jesus and just a little bit ashamed of Paul. Both of those people suffered horrendously. Associating myself with them, Jesus and Paul, could very well cost me something. And Jesus suffered to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul's literally suffering in prison and would soon join Jesus in death for the name of Christ. And Paul's letting Timothy to know, if you want to be loyal to the gospel, number two, you have to be faithful to the Lord of the gospel and to his kids. No shame. Would you rather be known by your affiliation with Jesus and his saints or by anything else, fill in the blank, worldly prestige or comfort? Do you chase creature comforts and ask God to follow you? Or do you follow Jesus and say, I'll take anything else that comes with him? You remember Peter denying Jesus before a slave girl? And later, under Holy Spirit conviction, regretting his cowardice, melted into a puddle of tears and contrition? He'll have you back, but he'll have you on his terms. Now, if your peers or coworkers to think of our day, 
Maybe your classmates, if you're a young student, or maybe some of your family members who don't know and follow Jesus, and they talk derogatorily about Jesus. They talk bad about him. They talk bad about Christians. They talk bad about churches. Oh, you're one of those Christian people, or you mean to tell me you're one of those Jesus follower people, one of those holy roller people? Why don't you just go on with your little religious zeal and be relegated to those nothings and nobodies of our society? Why don't you just instead just ditch all those losers and get with the real in crowd? Paul's telling Timothy his unashamed response ever and always to anybody at all times, even the Roman authorities that may come knocking on his door, you mean you're one of those Christian people? Yes. Absolutely. Joyfully. I'm glad to be associated with Jesus and His people. So the second evidence is that unashamed association with the Lord and His people. The third is in verses 8b all the way through 11. Not just be unashamed of the Lord and His people, even the suffering people of the Lord, but number three, join in suffering with faithful Christians. Do you see it at the end of verse 8? Join me in suffering for the gospel. Now, if you mark your Bible, you may want to just note this. If not, no, no problem. It may help you to see this. Verses 8 through 12 is one long sentence. If you just bracketed that, it's 105 words long in the original. And that exhortation at the end of verse 8, join me, is followed by an explosion of gospel delight. Join me in suffering for the gospel. And then he goes on to explain what that gospel is. Before we dive into the beauties of the gospel, let your eyes first fall on this third evidence of gospel loyalty, joining other saints in suffering for the gospel by God's power. Do you see that phrase? So in our previous point, we were looking at that exhortation not to be ashamed of the Lord or other suffering Christians, but here Paul's dragging the plow even deeper, and he's saying not only not be ashamed, but also join me in suffering for the gospel. Literally, co-suffer with me. And if you're a Bible marker or note taker, if this helps you, great, jot it down. This is the first command in the entire book at least explicit command. Other phrases are to be taken as commands, but this one is literally, unambiguously a command. Imperative verb, join me. The goal of the command, though, is not the suffering, but the gospel. For the gospel, by the power of God, the pillar commentary said the weight of the words Paul uses in this verse falls not on suffer, but on gospel, on God, and on his power. Join me in suffering for the gospel of God by his power. Paul immediately shifts gears then into that gospel. He goes from suffering to the Savior. Do you see this? There's no other way to be faithful to Jesus, and Paul knows it. Especially in suffering, there's no other way to be faithful in Jesus, uh, to Jesus in this lifetime unless we keep our eyes on Jesus, which is exactly what Paul does. We're going to sink beneath the waves just like Peter did when we take our eyes off of Christ and start to look at the storm and the raging sea, but eyes on Christ, He enables us to do what we otherwise are incapable of. There's no getting around the fact that verse 8 is a call to join Paul in suffering. But the heavy accent mark of the verse is on the deeper reality that God has, has invited both of them, Timothy and Paul, to join God in the glory of His salvation. Now, that's a long way to say what's, what I want to now ask you to do. I want you to take a gigantic gulp of verses 9 through 11. Drink this in. Absorb this. Eat this. Taste this. Feast on this. God has, verse 9, saved us and called us 
with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. I already said verses 8 to 12 is one long sentence, 105 words long. It's an eruption of doxological delight in Christ. That's worship of Jesus. That's what Paul's doing. He's not just writing, he's worshiping. I've said several times the entire passage is about, I believe, loyalty to the gospel. And I believe Paul gives six explanations of what that looks like. But I've yet to clarify what the gospel is. That's because I was waiting with bated breath to get to these verses because the Holy Spirit says it better than I ever could. Nine aspects of the gospel. Verse 9, the work of God to save us. Verse 9, the message through which God calls us. Verse 9, nothing to do with our work. Verse 9, everything to do with God's purpose and grace. Verse 9, which has been given to us from all eternity. Verse 10, and revealed by the appearing of Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 10, fulfilled when Jesus killed death from the inside out. He abolished death. How did he do that? He went down into the grave as a dead man. The corpse of Jesus, the cadaver of Christ, a lifeless body was put into a tomb, and as Hebrews says, he tasted death for us. Number eight, he he accomplished salvation through the gospel when the Lord burst from the grave alive forevermore, quote, bringing life and immortality to light for God's children. And number nine, verse 11, this message, the gospel, what I've just summarized, is what Paul was sent to preach and teach. So the third evidence of being loyal to the gospel, according to verse 8b, is joining Jesus and his people in suffering for the gospel. Instead of cowering away in fear, which Timothy no doubt would have been tempted to do, or failing to proclaim the truth, verse 11, because pagan people tell us to shut up and stop talking about Jesus. No. Loyal to the gospel. Whether it's right in the sight of you, that's your business, the apostles told the Sanhedrin in Acts, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Number four, following the example of other faithful Christians. Do you see this in verse 12? Paul steps away from putting the spotlight on Timothy and turns it upon himself. And Paul writes, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I've believed, and I know what he's going to be able to do on the final day. We talk a lot about this necessity at Grace Church of having a church. That's not a sales pitch for this church. We would be very happy for you to join any church in this region that'll preach the gospel from the scriptures faithfully and live out that gospel fellowship in the community of the church. But we, we do talk a lot about the necessity of a local church for faithful, faithfully living the Christian life because as we often put it here, Christianity is both taught and caught. And Paul's not shy about encouraging Timothy to take note of his life as an example for Timothy to follow. In many places like Corinthians and Philippians and this passage, Paul tells other Christians, follow my example. Which clearly implies we both need the teaching of the Word of God and the example of other godly people to help us walk in faithfulness our own self. But please notice that Paul grounds his shameless embrace of Christ as he suffers for Jesus, not in his own strength. Follow my example because I'm good at being a Christian. That's not what he does. But in the strength of his Lord. Do you see this? Personal knowledge of Jesus? I know whom I have believed. 
Now I want you to imagine a blind man who's ridiculously bright academically. Brain power, genius level. Eyes that won't function. I want you to imagine that this man through Braille and audio and whatever other sources he can get, he can get, he studies, he makes it his life ambition to study all the hues of all the wonderful colors of the palette that God has made. He knows everything about everything, about how to understand and explain every color there is. Now beside that man, in all his big library of books, I want you to also imagine an illiterate little child who grew up in the bush of a third world country whose eyesight works. Doesn't even know which side to open the book to, let alone the ability to read it. That little child cannot be persuaded by any of the scholars' arguments that those brilliant hues out there are something other than what she sees because she knows the kaleidoscope of God's creativity. And this man has only heard about it. Here Paul's speaking about that. He's talking about a personal experience. He's talking about personal knowledge of Christ. He's talking about a Jesus that he knows. Paul has entrusted all of himself to Jesus as his Lord. The word entrusted, given holy. Paul is asserting the gospel truth that everything he has ever yielded to Jesus, who is somebody he knows, is going to come back to him 30, 60, 100 fold in the age to come. Paul's asserting the grand truth that God is the great benefactor. He's never benefited. Paul's not giving God anything. He's constantly receiving and forever will receive. If you give yourself to Jesus, you will lose nothing. If you try to save your life, you will lose everything. That's what Paul's saying. I know him and everything I've entrusted to him. He'll keep it. He'll multiply it until that day. That day is obviously the final day when Jesus brings creation to its intended conclusion, when he establishes his kingdom forever, when the wicked are banished and the righteous are invited into the joy of our master. If you, like Paul, have banked all your hope to be reconciled with God for all eternity on the saving power of the risen Jesus, you will never be disappointed. That's the fourth evidence. The fifth? To be loyal to the gospel, the explanation of what Paul says Timothy has to do is, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words. Now this verse is the second formal command of the letter. Keep, retain, hold on to, seize, clutch with all your might. Dig your fingers like your life depends on it into the ledge of the words of God, the standard of sound words. It's not any arbitrary set of words. It's about the saving, life-changing doctrine of the gospel. This is so similar to what Paul writes about in a bunch of other places like Romans 6 when he says, devote yourself to the teaching. This verse ends with a portrait of what it would look like for a person to cleave to the words of God. What would it look like for your life, for my life, to just be clutching sound words? We'd be spiritually healthy, and what that would look like is the end of verse 13. We would be riveted to the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? The faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Christ himself would be the great object of our gaze. Faith in Christ Jesus. Love abounding, excelling, overflowing. All that is ours in Christ, these would be the sure markers of clutching sound words. So if that's not the evidence of our life, then we're not clutching those words. That's the fifth evidence of being loyal to the gospel. Devotedness to sound doctrine. The final one, verse 14. Guard the treasure with the kind of vehemence, the kind of intensity that corresponds to its value. 
You see verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. I just want to say, as I tried at the beginning, said I'm not going to say a lot of things, but i got to say that. Trust me, I've skipped some other things, and I'm about to skip almost all the other things. But I've got to say this. What's the price of the prize? Let's just be, let's get very real. If the prize is not priceless, do not treat it as if it is. Do not waste your life guarding something that is worthless. But if the treasure that Paul's talking about in verse 14, the treasure which has been entrusted to you, if it's of an untarnishable metal, a priceless metal, if it is actually of supreme worth, then do not foolishly leave it unprotected. This verse is almost identical to the end of 1 Timothy, where in chapter 6, Timothy was told to guard what has been entrusted to him, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of false knowledge, which some have professed and gone away from the faith. Guarding the gospel in this passage is also an imperative. Literally, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. There's no room for falling asleep on the job or failing to show up and clock in or making sure when you get there that all the surveillance monitors are functioning properly. Be vigilant. Stay ready. Gas up the generator. Times of emergency. If the power goes out, you're still on call. You are the watchman. Guard this treasure. What are we to guard? The ESV refers to it as the good deposit. This is a reference to what the previous verse, verse 13, is calling sound words, which is explained in Christ and God's saving accomplishments in Him on the cross and His resurrection in the previous verses, verses 8 to 11. Guard this treasure. Guard the reality that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting our trespasses against Him. Guard the reality that the Son of God died on the cross to satiate the wrath of God, to remove God's vengeance against sinners, and to credit to all who would put their faith in Him all of His righteousness so that we can approach God without being incinerated. Guard the Gospel. Not by our own strength. Do you see how verse 14 puts it? The same way the passage began. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. One of the great evidences that we're united to God is as I said at the beginning, we'll care about what God cares about. And if we don't care about what He cares about, then it does beg the question of our relationship to Him at all. And God cares about the Gospel. Put it this way in closing. God's never going to get over the fact that His Son gave His life as a ransom price for your redemption. That will never not be a big deal to God. And God the Holy Spirit will be very happy to provoke in the children of God in whom the Spirit takes up residence that Jesus is some kind of wonderful. He will also, that is the Holy Spirit, will also empower God's children to want to protect this Gospel and to proclaim this Gospel. But I leave you where just about every passage in 1 Timothy left us, not by hyper-individualizing this guarding. Us. The Holy Spirit given to us. Paul's talking about himself and Timothy. Guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you, but the Holy Spirit, we're told in verse 14, dwells in us. I believe Paul's alluding not only to an individual Christian, but to the glorious church. The Spirit of Jesus inhabits His churches. 
to protect the gospel. First Timothy 3 told us that. Pastors like Timothy have their responsibility in that work, but whole congregations are to see to it that the gospel is not adjusted, not altered, not added to, not subtracted from, not diminished or distorted, not hidden under a bushel. Rather, the church is to put the gospel on the pedestal of her life. This is what we are about. Center stage for all to see and all to hear, all to believe, all to obey. This is how we guard the gospel. So in verse 6, we began with the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, we end with the power of the Holy Spirit for us to guard this precious gospel. So the application, I hope, is abundantly obvious. Do six things in loyalty to the gospel. Stoke the flame of the Holy Spirit in your life. Feed the Spirit, starve the flesh, give the Holy Spirit the word concerning Christ. Romans 10, 17, that's how the Bible Bible describes the Bible. The word about Jesus. Give the Holy Spirit that word. Give Him prayer. Give Him the people of God, the church. Stoke the flame of Christ. Be unashamed of the Lord and of His people. The way to... The way to get over being ashamed, I I failed at this so many times. Man, the way to get over being ashamed, embarrassed about Jesus, is not promising God to do better next time. It's actually telling God that you're sorry for all the failures in the past. It's asking for forgiveness and seeking the Lord's power, not your own. Number three, join other Christians in suffering. Do you know any believers who have a hard time walking with Jesus? Nestle up beside them. Encourage them. Join them in their suffering. Number four, remember other faithful examples which presupposes you have relationships with other Christians that stir up your love for Jesus. Follow their example. How do you do that? You walk close with them. God saved us into his family. Hold on to sound teaching. Do you have good doctrine? Sound doctrine? Good words? Churches are built by Jesus to help us with that. And then finally, guard the treasure with all your heart. Relish the gospel. Look at Christ. See all the various facets of his redeeming love. Drink deep on what it means that he has absorbed God's wrath for you. That he imputes God's righteousness to you. Think about what happened in his wounds when the Lord laid our iniquities on him. Drink deeply of what was accomplished when he uttered those fateful words, it is finished. What was accomplished when he, according to Romans 4, was raised from the dead, and God calls it something justification. Look at Jesus, guard this gospel, drink deep of the realities of God's love for you in Christ. This is what it means to be loyal to the gospel. Let's pray together.